Open up to the book of Galatians. Nice to see everybody. I'd like to see you in your seats. And open up to the third chapter. We will read verses 1 to 14, then I will comment on verses 6 to 14. Again, Galatians chapter 3. Starting in the first verse, I will read to the 14th verse. I will comment on 6 to 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourselves by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Holy Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among the, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the Lord are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always for your word that teaches us not just who Christ is, but what Christianity is all about. How we are to live by faith, to continue by faith, we're saved by faith, we're changed by faith, we love by faith, we embrace you by faith, Father God. We don't walk by sight, we don't feel our way through, God. We believe our way through, trusting in your kindness at all times, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your mercy, trusting in your grace, even though we can't see it right now, Father God. We know that all things are working together for good. So we thank you for the gift of saving faith. We thank you for the gift of repentance, Father God. We thank you, O oh God, that Jesus Christ himself became a curse for us, that we become the righteousness of God. Bless this sermon, Father God, and open up our ears and our hearts to understand the things that God is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. In Paul's defense of the message he has preached to this Galatian church, somewhere around A.D. 42, A.D. 44, he preached in southern Turkey, and we know that the church of Galatia was birth, and that Paul preached a message that was entirely dependent on Jesus Christ and his atonement and his redemption. 
that a man's salvation was purely and solely based upon the merit and the work of Jesus Christ. People that never heard about Jesus Christ, never even heard about the Jewish Old Testament, flocked to this message that this itinerant Jewish preacher was preaching. They had no idea who he was, but all they know is that he was healing people. The eyes of the blind were open, paraplegics were walking, and people were getting saved, and they were turning from their sins. They were repenting, they were confessing, they were embracing Christ, they were living a new life. They had this new sense of hope, new sense of purpose, new sense of direction in their life. And this whole turnabout just came by hearing a new message of this man who was crucified for the sins of the world and that whoever believed in him would not fall under the wrath of God but would be pardoned from their sin would be justified as though they never had sinned they would be made right with God accepted before God on no other circumstance but just believing in what the Son of God did on their behalf that was the message that Paul preached but unfortunately, this Galatian church started listening to other people who twisted and perverted the scriptures and they started following a different way. They started following the Old Testament way. They started following the way of Judaism and the way of the law of Moses. And we've been going over this for the last six or seven weeks. And uh, this is what Paul was defending himself against. And he asked a simple question. We went over last week four questions. Did you receive the Spirit? The evidence of salvation through the works of the law trying to convert to Judaism or did you just hear the message about Jesus and were you saved and changed? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The question is simple. We heard you, Paul. We believed and it changed our lives upside down. So Paul is saying, then why do you want to go back to the law? And this is the polemic that's taken place in the book of Galatians. This is the problem. Paul is defending the gospel he preached. He's defending himself. And now he's bringing the Galatians' experience into it and reminding them that your whole life changes by simple faith. And now he's going to not just defend his message by their personal experience of their Christian experience, but he's going to defend it through the scriptures. He's going to go to the life of Abraham. And uh, he starts to defend the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now don't miss this. To miss this message, to miss what we're saying now, is to miss the whole Bible. You might as well take the Bible, throw it away. Because it's all pointing to one thing. That a sinner is justified by pure saving faith and trusting Jesus Christ as their personal ones. Everything. It's the doctrine of justification by faith. What makes men... Now before we get into this, you'd be surprised, well, you know something, we know that. But you'd be surprised, most of the world does not know that. Most of the Christian world does not know that. Most of Orthodox Christianity has no idea that Christ offers salvation only through saving faith. And you can't add anything to it. If you try to, you spoil it. God accepts no man on his own merit. Not even if you, you could believe in Jesus 99% and just believe a little bit in yourself, you've just spoiled everything. It is solely throwing yourself at the mercy of God for salvation. Paul is brilliant here. And I want you to know something over the next two chapters, most of the next two chapters... 
Paul's reasoning is nothing less than masterful. Most Christians, even evangelical, born-again Christians, Bible-believing Christians, don't even know what these two chapters mean at all. When it comes to the second, the third and fourth chapter of Galatians, they're totally lost. And understandably so, because if you're not trained in understanding Old Testament theology, then you'll get a little lost. You'll get a lot of lost in here, and you'll miss just the beauty of what's being said and how it is being said and for the purpose it is being said. So I will go through this meticulously over the next several weeks, probably more like six weeks, as I speak just about the third and the fourth chapter so we can understand the brilliance of Paul and how awesome Jesus Christ is and how nothing else at all could ever save a man and why we should know this and how we defend the faith and how it, it, it brings ease to our conscience, it brings confidence to our Christian life. Because whether you know it or not, even though you are saved by faith, it takes faith to live every day. And the only thing that can strengthen our faith is understanding what Christ did and who He is. I don't know about you, but I want a stronger faith. I want to live the Christian life. Do you want to live the Christian life? I don't want to fail. I, I want to live the Christian life. I want to enjoy the Christian life. I want to be a strong Christian. I want to be a Christian known for someone who has compassion and love and, and mercy and, and goodness and kindness and self-control. I want to understand that. But to have that, the greater faith I have, the more the fruit of the Spirit I will walk in. And the stronger faith comes from a deeper understanding. So please understand this. As we go over these two chapters, please stay with me. I will break it down as articulately as I can, as clearly as I can, for the purpose that you can enjoy what's being said. Now I want you to sit back today because when it comes to application, what God wants you to do is listen with faith. That's it. Don't try to do a thing. Listen and ask God to bring understanding into our life. We need to play real close attention, not just today's sermon, but up to the next coming weeks. Before we get into the text, there's a couple of things we need to learn about what's going on here. And if we have a title, Those of Faith are the Sons of Abraham. I put that up there for a reason because, well, it's in the Bible. It says here in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, there's something we all need to know about this. This was a sort of a Jewish consensus. The Jews believed, because they were Jews by circumcision, they were Abraham's offspring, that basically they had nothing to fear. John the Baptist had to deal with this in Matthew chapter 3 when he says, when John the Baptist saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. Well, Jesus, basically in John 8, has to say the same thing when he was dealing with the same people. They answered him, Jesus, that is, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Basically, you would trust God the way Abraham trusts God. So when Paul starts using Abraham as an example throughout this whole chapter, understand something. He is dealing with this kind of mindset. That Abraham, 
I'm a Jew. I've been circumcised. What do I got to fear? Like John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, be careful to bear fruit with your repentance. Do not think you have Abraham to save you. Abraham could do nothing for you. I am the Savior. One must trust in me and know me personally and not in Abraham. It is important to see that because that circumcision was not the true test of a man's relationship to God. But circumcision is of the heart. It's obedience of the heart. Understand something. Outward circumcision was both a misunderstanding and misapplied by many Jews in their lives. They thought if I was outwardly circumcised, I was right with God. Many religious people think that. Many religious people think, well, you know, uh, I was born a cultural Christian. Uh, I was born a cultural Catholic. I was born a cultural Greek Orthodox. I was born a cultural Protestant. You know what I mean? I, I was born this way. I was born into the family. And I guess I'm going to heaven because I am. I thought that way for many years. Many Christians are here today. You thought according that one day. Many times you would speak to people and say, well, I am a... But God doesn't care what a person you are. Jesus wants to know, are you saved? Are you born again? That's what really counts. It's not whether you are circumcised. It's not whether you are a child of Abraham. It's whether you are saved. That is the question. So outward circumcision, outward religion, it's religiosity, it's, it's externals, it has nothing to do with what's going on in the heart. Is someone truly trusting Christ as Savior? That is what we need to listen to. Let's move on to verse 6, and I'll go through these verses, and I will give some application to the text. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 6, Paul gives us a clear, simple statement. But it has profound implications, and this is where people miss out on biblical teaching. We could read that and just move on as though no big deal. But the implications are strong, because what Paul just said, in a nutshell, is that the whole ball of religious wax got started by a man trusting in the extraordinary promise of God. Does that mean anything to anybody here in the 21st century Brooklyn? Well, if you know the story of Abraham going back to the 12th chapter and the 15th chapter of Genesis, you would understand what Abraham was believing. Abraham was an old, 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 very old man. And his wife was just as old. The Bible says that they were biologically dead. They were beyond the years of childbearing. But God said, Abraham, you're going to have not just a son in your old age. That son's going to turn into many, many nations. As a matter of fact, the whole world's going to be blessed through you and your seed. Now, if you tell a virile 30-year-old and his wife of 20 years old that, they would be like, all right, maybe. But when you tell them two old people that have been trying to have children for the last 70 years without having a child, that would be like, well, God, I don't know if it's going to work. You see, we can't have children. Abraham never doubts. He believes. 
And to believe in that supernatural promise is to believe in the attributes of God's fidelity and His faithfulness. And God said, you believe that, Abraham? You're righteous in my eyes. Just by that act of faith, by that act of trust in something I said, something Adam did not do, who I told him he would die, he didn't think he would die. I told you you will live and you will believe you will live and you will have a child. Because you trust in me, I count you now as sinless. You're justified in my sight, Abraham. Even though you're a man, I take you into relationship with me. This is something that needs to be understood. So when Paul says, just like Abraham believed God, it was counted him as righteous. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What he's saying is that those false teachers that came down and started teaching you that you needed to be circumcised to be a son of Abraham, just like they told John the Baptist, and just like they told Jesus, and both John the Baptist and Jesus had to correct them, Paul had to correct them too and say, no, 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 get this right. It's not physical circumcision that makes you a child of Abraham. Circumcision to Abraham came after the fact. The fact was he believed first, got circumcised later. He goes, it's faith in God that makes you a child of Abraham. This was a clear shot at the false teacher's teaching about trusting in Abraham and circumcision. Paul makes his point clear. Faith, not circumcision, makes a person right with God and a true child of Abraham. This was the backbone of the false teacher's argument. This is how they got a hearing. They snuck in. They said, no, no, Paul didn't give you a whole message. You need to be circumcised to be accepted before God. And as we said last week, there was a great defection and people were actually believing that just faith in Jesus is not enough. Now, to me and you, that's like, I got 22 years as a Christian, I got 22 years of studying the Scriptures, I understand that to be a fact and that to be true, but there are a lot of people running around that think they got to do something to be saved. When there's really nothing you can do to be saved but to trust in Jesus. Otherwise you're lost forever. They knew how to twist the Scriptures. Don't miss that. All false teachers love to twist the Scriptures. They love to tell you a little bit, but never explain anything. What Paul is doing, Paul's not quoting a scripture. He is explaining a scripture within its context. Don't miss it. Please don't miss it. We are called to understand. Anybody can quote a verse of scripture. The false teachers were constantly quoting verses of scripture. But Paul was explaining the scriptures. That is what we do every Sunday. That is what we do every Monday. That's what we do every Thursday. We are called to explain the Scriptures as clearly as we can. Verse 8 says something. It says this. In the Scripture, that means the book of Genesis, specifically the 12th, 12th chapter, the 3rd verse, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel. God preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham in this simple message, just saying this. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That's the gospel. He didn't explain anything more than that. But in the mind of Paul, that is enough 
to qualify as the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all the nations would be blessed through him. It just brings in the authority of Scripture. Paul didn't say, Paul says, well, he didn't even say Moses said. He said, the Scriptures speak for themselves. And he lays it on the authority of Scripture. Just like the one who received the promise, meaning Abraham, by faith, and was accepted by God, don't miss this, so also those whom the promise was intimated. At this point in Genesis 12, 3, God was just as much concerned, not just for Abraham, but for people that weren't even born, namely you and me and everybody else for the last 2,000 years. When God gave that promise 3,500 years ago, all longer to Abraham, he was thinking of you and me and every other non-Jewish believer for the last 2,000 years. Some people think that Christianity just came out of nowhere. Please understand something. Christianity is not the new religion on the block. God gave Judaism just so Christianity could be birthed. That is it. Judaism is a mechanism. It's a venue for the Christ to come. God's intention was always to bless the whole world. And he gave the whole Jewish nation through one man and one woman who are basically old and biologically dead. It's a supernatural race, a supernatural nation for the sole purpose of blessing the whole world through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is like a surgeon here. Please don't miss this. In nine verses, he quotes the Old Testament seven times. In these verses we read from 6 to 14 is nine verses. He quotes the Old Testament seven different times from Genesis, from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, from Habakkuk. He quotes both Moses and the prophets to make his point. And he quotes it within context to prove the point that man is not saved by the works of the law, but a man could only enter into salvation. A man, a sinner, could only enter into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament points to it. Jesus Christ is the climax. He is the culmination of everything the Old Testament said. How important that is to know. As a matter of fact, it's, it's quite liberating. Now I know what to do with my sin. I'm not trying to double up my good efforts. I'm just giving it to Jesus and saying, Jesus, change me. Change my life. Verse 9. He goes to make his point clear. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. The point is clear. It's not ethnic Jews of 2,000 years ago, but believing Jews as well as non-believing Jews who believed. These are the spiritual children of Abraham. Do you believe you are a sinner? Do you trust in Christ as your Savior? Please understand you are more Jewish than any other Jewish person believing or living today. That's what qualifies for a true Israel, is to believe in Israel's Messiah. You and I qualify as true 
spiritual Jews. Verse 9. Verse 10, I'm sorry. For all who rely on the works of the Lord are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the Lord to do them. Paul, after settling the argument on who's Abraham's true children by the scriptures, he goes even further now. He destroys all hope. Don't miss this. He destroys all hope of ever being saved by any religious works. He did, with one stroke of the pen, he quotes out of Leviticus, he quotes out of Deuteronomy 27, 26, and with one stroke of the pen, he destroys anybody's hope on being religious or good enough ever to be accepted by God for eternal life. He actually shows, he goes further than that, he shows the horror, the actual horror of trying to be accepted by religious where we can't keep it. It's impossible to be perfect. The thought of trying to be perfect and trying to be better than I was yesterday is too much of a burden to bear. It's not possible. We have to perfectly live under the law of Moses. The Galatians can't do it. Paul couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. No man could ever do it. Moses couldn't do it. To do this is to live under a heavy, heavy state of conscience. And to live in fear. Many religious people who are not saved, but they're Christians by culture, understand something. This might apply to you today. They're too scared, or I ask this, uh, are you too scared to say you're good enough to go to heaven because it might sound too arrogant before God? But yet, you're just as afraid to say you're bad enough to go to hell? And you sort of try to live in this state of, I don't know, where, where am I? That's, that's torment. But yet, many religious Christians, cultural Christians, live in this state of, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm perfect enough to go to heaven, but I'm certainly not bad enough to go to the other place. And they live in this sort of deliberation in their mind, and they just don't know. That's a horror. We'll deal with that in application. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, because he quotes Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Understand some. His argument continues with the Old Testament. God has already revealed how sinners can be saved. It's in God's mercy. Those who are saved live by faith. That's what he's saying. One who trusts in God, listen, one who trusts in the mercy of God to be saved, one who relies on the God of mercy, will be faithful to the God of mercy. That's what it means to live by faith. Those who trust in God, those who rely on God, will be faithful to live for God from the heart. It is important for us to know that. He goes on in verse 12, he says this, But the Lord is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them continuously, is what he's saying. Once again, Paul shows the great divide between faith in Jesus Christ and works of the law. 
Faith is a settled trust in what God has done for you. That's what faith is. It's a settled trust that God says I'm forgiven because of Christ. It's a settled account. That is it. Now I learn how to live as a Christian. Law and works is a continuous attempt to get right with God. And like I said, the conscience will never be able to say you're good enough to go to heaven, but you're never bad enough to go to hell. And people live in this kind of torturous deliberations in their mind that they don't know they go back and forth. It's horrible. An unrelenting taskmaster, always condemning but never liberating, always promising eternal life, but never delivering any kind of hope, any kind of joy, any kind of peace to the tormented conscience. Can't do it. Paul hits the high point in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is saying this. His theological reasoning is incredible. Christ bore our sins for breaking the commandments. Christ was separated from God and condemned as a lawbreaker so that we can be accepted by God as true sons and daughters of God. He who knew no sin, Paul said in another place, became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. Verse 14. So that, he sums it all up in this, so that Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus, or faith in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles also. Not just salvation for the Jews, no, but salvation for the whole world. Not just in the first century, but the second century. And if, if Christ tarries for, into the third, into the fourth millennium, if Christ doesn't come back for 3,000 more years, then there's salvation for all people who believe in Christ. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Like it says here, verse 14 shows us the universal effects of the crucifixion of Christ. Now that both the law's commands and its threats of dying are removed, the way to God is finally open for all those who believe and trust what Jesus has done for them. And they receive two great benefits. One is being justified and one is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with the gift of the Holy Spirit comes this great sense of peace that the war is over. It's over. The war is over. You're accepted by God. Never again to be tormented by Satan, who is what? The accuser of the brethren. Never again to be tormented even by our own conscience. So as I just run to Christ and remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Did you enjoy forgiveness today? Did anybody enjoy forgiveness this weekend? It's Sunday afternoon. I'm sure somebody sinned this weekend, right? Am I the only one who blew it? Anybody else here? Keep your hands down. We've all blown it. Didn't you have a sense of peace just by going to Jesus and going to the Father and say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Did you, I, and I had that as I was worshiping her. We sang it. That beautiful last hymn. I, I was basically in tears. I was just like, what Christ has done. 
what Christ has done. I was, I was so grateful. That's because he became a curse for us. And because of faith in him, we received the Holy Spirit. I can never talk myself into peace, could you? God gives it. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives the gift of peace and the gift of hope. I have no fear. Do you have fear of dying and seeing God? Not at all. How can a sinner have that kind of hope? How can a sinner have that kind of assurance? Is it because we're good enough? Absolutely not. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that reminds me that we're born again. In the fourth chapter, he calls it the cry of Abba Father. Now we don't associate with God as the judge. God is our loving Father by which we cry out, Abba Father. Please understand that. Salvation and the Holy Spirit. Let's get right into application. Something's happened. A transaction has taken place. Compared to Abraham's faith, that's what we do. When you believe, and I believe that I'm a sinner in need of salvation, that Jesus died for me, it's an extraordinary leap of faith to believe that God would forgive me by crushing His Son on my behalf. No other religion comes close to teaching the tenets of Christianity. Every religion teaches how man can get to God. They don't teach what God did for man. They don't teach that God came to man. They don't teach that God became man. Because they cannot teach that. Only Christianity can teach that. God became man. He lived a sinless life. And then gave himself for our sins. In our place. It's a transaction. It's the vicarious substitution of Jesus Christ. He takes my curse. He takes your curse. He takes the sentence of death upon himself. And he gives us the sentence of justifying as though we never sinned. Can a Christian ever get tired of hearing that? Tell me what you want to hear when the doctor says you have 10 minutes to live. Tell me you want to hear you've been justified by grace. Nothing else can compare to hearing the blessed words. Forgiven. That's all you want to hear. Nothing else. Nothing else matters. When it comes to applying this text to our life, let me explain something. It's very historical. It's very judicial. It's very Old Testament. It's very Jewish. We're so far removed from this ancient text of Scripture. How do we apply it to our life? We are so used to pastor, preach, and then tell me what to do. We're into doing something. We're into, give me three steps to be a better husband. Give me two things to be a better Christian. What must I do? But in a text like this, don't miss this. All God wants you to do is step back and survey the wonderful cross. Don't do nothing but reflect. Don't do anything but contemplate. Don't do nothing but think. Because it's when we think about what Christ has done. This wonderful verse of scripture. That Christ became a curse for us. That Christ who knew no sin. 
From his first conscious thought to his last dying breath, he knew no sin, but just an absolute love for the Father. He took our sentence upon himself. Has that stopped you at all ever in your Christian life? Have you ever given five minutes to that concept? Have you ever given a full day to that concept? Have you ever fasted and prayed just over that verse of scripture? Because that and only that is what's ever going to change your life. We are so used to tell me what to do. If you can do what I suggested by just thinking of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ becoming a curse for you, go and tell for us, because that's what he did. He bore the curse. He had eternal wrath. We can't comprehend that somehow Jesus Christ actually took eternal wrath. I can't comprehend. But tell me, how can it not change it? Take what I just said. Now take all the other stuff we've been thinking about all weekend that's really important. Take it and compare it to what I just said. Take it and compare it to what Paul just explained. And you tell me what's going to change your life. Can anything you worried about this week compared to what Paul just explained to us? That's how you apply truth to your life. I'd rather have every Christian have an ounce of reflection than a pound of doing. Give me men who think, give me women who reflect through the faith. Give me somebody who calls up and says, I've been thinking about that sermon. I've been thinking about Paul. I've been thinking about what Jesus did. I started reading my Bible. I started reading into a account. Guess what? It's changing my life. An ounce of reflection, more than a pound of doing, but people like to do. Because we think that God wants us to do all the time. Where God really wants you to reflect and to think what Christ has done. Because when you understand what Christ has done, your doing will stop. And you'll start responding as grateful, loving Christians. To reflect the unmanageable happened. In the eyes of God, the unmanageable, un imaginable has happened. Christ the perfect one, God's only begotten Son, whom I am well pleased, became as lawless in the eyes of God as you and me. God crushed him for our iniquity. And the chastisement for our well-being was put it on. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was chastised for our transgressions. God turned his back on him. Father, why have thou forsaken me? He suffered as a sinner and bore our sins. He suffered our sentence, which eventually became our cure. The only application is to sit back and to contemplate what Christ has done for you. That's it. If that doesn't change your life, nothing ever will. Nothing. 
You'll still be the same tomorrow. I'll tell you right now. Next week, you'll come in here with the same problems, the same thought processes. Nothing's going to change your life. You'll still be unloving if you're unloving. You'll still be without self-control if you're living without self-control. You'll still be loveless. You'll still be without any peace, without any hope, and without any kind of contentment in your life unless you can correct this. This is our contentment. This is our peace. This is our hope. And this is our joy. Reflect deep, long, and deep on what Christ has done for us. I have a lot more to say, but I'm not going to say This is what brings a life under a, the control of the Son of God. It's this thinking. If I was to highlight anything, and hopefully I just did, please, Christian man, please, Christian woman, think about what Christ has done for you. Make it part of your life. But pastor, how can I think of such lofty thoughts? I'll give you a hint. As soon as you sin, think. If I do that, pastor, I'll be thinking all day. Think all day. That is the purpose. Let our sins drive us to thinking of what Christ has done. When it does, you will sin a lot less. And so will I. Let me close with this. The Bible says, it's by hearing with faith that a man is saved. Did you hear in faith today? Did you hear in faith? What was going on when the word was going forward? Were you receiving? Did you see Christ as portrayed, as crucified for you? Did you see that the Holy Spirit show you that hope in anything else is a false hope? That if, 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 if all good works could save us, then Christ died for nothing. Nobody would ever want to say that. Please understand something. I ask you today, would, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for me? Would you do that? Please. I ask you this question. Think, think for a moment. If you were to die tonight, would God accept you? And why? Think about that. I really want you to think about that question. If something would have happened to you tonight, would God accept you? And why should He? None of us are perfect, so we can't claim that. I ask you this. Do you want to be right with God? I ask you that. That's where it starts. Do you want to be right with God? Acknowledge two things. That you've sinned against God. But that Christ came and became a curse for you. That you can be saved. Pray this prayer with me, would you? Pray it in the quietness of your own heart. Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. But I heard today the message with faith. I trust that Jesus Christ died for me once and for all. I never have to fear death anymore. I never have to fear you anymore. I know my sins are forgiven. I thank you that Jesus Christ is now my Lord and Savior. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Please understand something. If you really prayed that today, if you meant that in your heart, something new is going to happen. The Bible says you receive the Holy Spirit. Something new is going to happen to you. Please tell somebody. Tell me. Tell somebody who brought you. But tell somebody today, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Amen? God bless you.